Improving health literacy, the ability to understand and act on health information, is key to improving health outcomes and lowering costs. Welcome to the Health Literacy 2.0 podcast, the podcast series from EdLogix where we talk with business, HR, health, and community leaders and explore unique, data-driven, and effective behavior-changing solutions that can help improve people's health literacy and increase their engagement with health and wellness programs. For show notes and bonus resources, visit www.edlogix.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast on health literacy and workforce well-being. This is Seth Serksner, Chief Health Officer at EdLogix, and I'm joined today by a colleague of mine for many years and industry leader, Sean White with Alliant. So, Sean, thanks for joining us today. Really happy to have you. You know, we've known each other for a long time. We worked together you know, some time ago back at Mercer, probably almost 20 years ago, as at least the first time we met. And we've been staying in touch, which I really appreciate. But just for the listeners, give a little background as to, you know, kind of your pathway and where you are today. Sure. Yeah. Great to be with you here, Seth. And yeah, it's hard to believe that it probably has been about 20 years since we worked on an infamous project together back in the day. Yeah. But yeah, very happy to be here. So my name is Sean White. I am a consultant with Alliant. I joined Alliant about three years ago after 22 years with Mercer. So hard to believe I've been doing this job for 25 years. But in my current role, I work with employers to help them manage their health and welfare benefit programs, which you know includes everything that's wrapped around that from well-being to looking at point solutions to thinking about health equity, etc. My particular bent on this work might be a little different than some folks in my role because I actually started out on the actuarial track. So I was a a math major, passed a couple actuarial exams, and then decided I didn't want to give up the next decade of my social life for that. So I'm a self-described actuarial dropout. But with that as my background, I do enjoy getting into the numbers and the math and you know ROI calculations and things like that. So enjoy getting into that level of detail with our vendor partners and with our clients. Yeah, super helpful. And I do recall when we worked together that I too am a bit of a data nerd. So we had that to share. And I think that the actuarial angle is really important in this industry in particular, as we try to establish credibility, especially in some of the areas that I won't call them fringe now, but 25 years ago, wellness, well-being, some of this stuff felt like Okay, prove it to me. Yeah. So speaking of that, so what are you seeing? You work with all kinds of employers, primarily self-insured, and I know you cross some industries and even national work, even though you're in the West right now. So what kind of things are you working on? What are you excited about? Is there innovation in health plan benefit design? Or are there some pain points? What's happening out there? I think the first thing I would say in response to that Seth, I think you know that I've always in my career spent a lot of time with vendors to learn about their solutions. I'm a benefits nerd in addition to being a data nerd. So I like to learn about this stuff, but I think it also makes me a better consultant to you know really understand what's happening out in the market. But the question that I get asked most frequently in those conversations is, you know, what what are the hot things? You know, this was true pre-COVID. Now as we are coming through it, hopefully out of it. 
I think there's even more focus, but sort of two big areas of focus for employers. The first being behavioral health, which is a really wide umbrella. The second being looking at benefits through a DEI lens, which is also a big umbrella. And it's you know a bit of a Venn diagram because there's certainly overlap between those two. As we talk to employer clients, there's a lot of discussion around you know, what can they do to address needs within their workforce in those areas? And I think both of those are being focused on because there's huge need. I mean, there's just huge need in general in the U.S. population in those areas. But also, as we look at a really tight labor market with unemployment at a, what, 50-year low, employers are looking at ways to attract and keep talent. And so, you know, maybe looking at some non-traditional ways to deliver benefits might be a way to help with those attraction and retention efforts. We all know about this whole kind of behavioral health, burnout, all the factors there, you know, regardless of age, because people's family members, dependents are also experiencing this. It's been a rough time. We had a rough time even before COVID. People kind of forget that there was an opioid epidemic and also many, many issues. So this was on the trend anyway, and it got exacerbated. The DE&I issue and my particular focus on health equity. So when you say that we're trying to do some things with benefits, how do you make benefits more inclusive? How do you make them more equal? What kind of things are you playing with out there? What kind of vendor excitement or innovations are you seeing? Yeah, it can take different forms depending on, you know, the employer situation, their population, what, you know, if they are getting feedback from employees on where they might feel inequity or gaps within the program. I think fitting into that, we've seen a lot of focus around LGBTQ plus, you know, benefits, whether it's, okay, we're going to cover surgical and other treatment to help with this. There are some interesting vendors out in the marketplace now that are providing some interesting solutions in that area. I think it's still very much a developing space. So that's sort of looking at it through one lens, but then you could also look at it through a socioeconomic lens. And, you know, there's been a lot of research and findings around social determinants of health. And that's probably a concept that I first learned of maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. But it's a term that only within the last maybe three to five years, you know, I've talked about professionally with clients because they're looking at it. You know, if we've got low paid members of our workforce living in food deserts or they don't have access to transportation, like how can we potentially address that from a benefit or a perquisite standpoint to level the playing field within our population? Which is interesting. You know, I get a kick out of that. It's creative. It's innovative. It's a different challenge. But it's a real challenge. And if we can help our employer clients with that, that feels pretty rewarding. You know, it's so important. In the old days, we used to call it SES, right? Socioeconomic status. And we all knew that, quote, income was related to health. When we started talking about social determinants of health, it was more in the context of maybe a Medicaid population or an unemployed population. But as we started to look at it, it turns out that employed people also have trouble making ends meet on a daily basis and have some of these issues, even recognizing that financial well-being was a very hot topic pre-pandemic and continues to be. I know I had a conversation with an employer and I was saying, you know, we were doing some analysis around SUH and we had some data and this benefits leader, she said to me, 
you know, we kind of knew because we heard through the grapevine that one of our people was sleeping in their car at night. Oh. When it hit us that, you know, some of our people, they're not stable. And that that's, you know, just morally and ethically, that's just sad and hard and we need to do something about it. And obviously that worker is going to be distracted and not do the best. So I think you're right that employers are trying to recognize this and somehow build it in there recognizing right in a high deductible plan that that may not be good or there may be some things we need to do. I've seen women's health issues, especially kind of, I don't know if this is a proper term, but middle-aged menopausal women and all those issues that are going on. That seems to be a hot area too. Are you seeing some of that happening as well in the benefit design? Yeah, there's been a lot of focus on, I mean, it, it sort of started more narrowly focused around fertility support, but have seen that expand into broader family support. And then more recently, to your point, kind of looking at the life cycle of a person or, or this particular segment of the population, getting into that menopausal support. You know, if you look at the point solution map, there's a lot of vendors focused on fertility and menopausal support is still a developing area. But again, when you think about benefits through a DEI lens, traditional peanut butter medical plan, and, you know, everything that surrounds that, there's probably some gaps that could be filled for the individual who's going through that situation. Yeah, exactly. Especially as we, you know, are hoping to even things out and have more women in the workforce, more leadership roles, everyone working longer. So let me ask you this. You know that this has been a hot topic for me related to health equity and some of these access issues is, is health literacy and what I've been even calling health literacy 2.0. This idea that for so long, we've just had kind of boring brochure where we just don't really do patient education well, system navigation well. But if we took behavioral science and gamification, combined it with good data and personalization and really interesting multimedia, interactive, YouTube-like, gaming, all that good stuff, we could really help people learn more and take this health education, health literacy to what we call health literacy 2.0 and really help people navigate their own journeys regardless of where they are in their health. Do you think that even makes sense? Is that on the radar? Are we pushing the radar? Where's that fit in all this? I think that... Anyone who has spent any time, you know, as a professional in benefits and has, you know, dealt with employee questions around their benefits or their claims or whatever would agree with the fact that we have a literacy problem just in general. But I think the focus to your point so far has been, well, we've got the table in our benefit guide that defines a deductible and an out-of-pocket maximum and a copay. So, you know, it's all right there. Lead the horse to water and hope that they drink it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's absolute need in that area. I don't think there's been much focus on it. You know, the solution you just described isn't like anything that I've seen in the market to date. Certainly would be more engaging than a list of definitions at the back of a benefit guide. Right. So if we could get people to use it and come back, we could effectively address that issue of health literacy in our country. Yeah. I mean, being the data guy that you are doing the researcher that I am, I just, you know, health literacy data is so strong. The CDC has now included health literacy goals in their 2030 healthy people guidelines, redefining 
health literacy is both organizational and personal. Mm. So the personal goals being having the knowledge, skills, and confidence to navigate your health journey and help your family. And I see a lot of solutions. And again, I'd be curious, there's a lot of kind of navigation advocacy type services out there, but now they've been there for what, 10 years and we still need them, you know? So (laughs) seeing an appetite for those or people getting a little ready to move on or what's happening. I think there's still appetite for those. I mean, I think part of the challenge, you know, probably some of the original vendors in that space, like a quantum health and an accolade, right? Right. Outside of historically, outside of reference-based pricing, there's probably not a more disruptive thing that an employer can do. Because in general, those solutions require moving away from a national carrier to a TPA model. You know, before there were TPAs in play that had access to the national carrier networks, I mean, I used to tell Quantum, like, okay, so we got to go to this TPA. So we're losing 10% on claims. So you've got to at least make that up through gap up, right? You know, now that we are in an environment where we have TPAs either owned by a national carrier or with access to those networks, it removes that network unit cost differential from the equation. But it's still a carrier change. And employers, I think it is changing. It has to change, but. You know, I mean, geez, you and I were talking about high quality networks 20 years ago. Right. And it was kind of a new concept, but very few employers were like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, let's send people to quality. But, oh, but everybody's got to be in the network because we can't have any disruption. Right. We have to have access. We can't limit it. So I think over time, employers have become more willing to embrace some disruption if whatever the solution is is truly going to make a difference. But even, you know, that said, the majority of employers aren't doing something very disruptive around this. And it's not just direct quality. Like if we think about the quadruple aim, right? You know, let's lower the rate of healthcare cost growth. Let's improve the quality. Let's improve the patient experience and the provider experience. There's a lot of solutions out there that an employer can choose from that sort of get at that quadruple aim, you know, concierge navigation included. There's, you know, set excellence. There's virtual direct primary care. You know, the list goes on and on. There's a lot of things an employer can kind of cobble together, but employers are doing a lot. They're not doing everything. And, you know, to your original question around why do we still need navigation? Well, healthcare is still broken in the U.S. It's still unsustainable. Employers are well positioned, you know, paying for 60% of the cost of care in our country to try to drive that transformational change. But I think they're still not ready to take on as much disruption as perhaps is needed to to really, truly drive that change. Well, and it's hard, right? I mean, they're also trying to run a business, (laughs) right? And we, we hear that sometimes too. So, but it's such a big piece of their spend And I often wonder, like you say, so if, especially in these times that you mentioned of low unemployment and really trying to keep and retain people, they don't want to make it so hard. In fact, they want to make the benefit richer in a way. And so that's why sometimes I scratch my head. Why wouldn't we do things that make it more understandable for them, like this health literacy and like some of these other benefits that you talked about? 
It also kind of brings me to this other trend, right? So we started the conversation right out of the shoot around behavioral health and kind of, you know, employee burnout. And I feel like I'm also seeing a context for that around a little bit of a next evolution of well-being too. So the old wellness was maybe fitness and screenings. The next wellness slash well-being had a lot more personalization, a lot of incentives, and maybe a little bit broader, maybe mindfulness or a couple of other things. And now we're even shifting maybe a little bit away from some of those incentives and more towards this, what's in it for me? What's my purpose in life? Is it aligned with my work? Am I happy in that? for me kind of fits maybe the broader context of how you understand behavioral health and physical health. But wondering if you're seeing a little bit of, you know, attention being paid towards that, which might have been some point seemed a little soft and hard to put an actuarial value on. I think we're early days there, but I mean, we've certainly seen the evolution around well-being, which, you know, 20 years ago, it was eat less, move more and money. To a recognition that, you know, whole person health is about a lot more than the physical aspect. There was the focus on the emotional aspect. There's been an increasing focus. You referenced this earlier, Seth, around the whole concept of financial wellness. I mean, again, if, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if I would have gone to an employer and said, hey, you should put a resource out there to provide budget coaching, financial coaching to your employees. And every employer would say, oh, no, invasion of privacy. You know, we can't go there. There's, you know, wide recognition that employees need help and they're happy to take that help from their employer with appropriate firewalls. You know, they don't want the CFO to be the budget counselor. But in this current labor environment with, again, you know, record low unemployment, and I think shifting expectations on the part of employees, part of that maybe generationally the result of generational changes, but this concept of belonging and purpose, I think increasingly we're seeing, you know, folks come and do a job. And I think there is more prevalence in the younger generations, but I think, you know, those like us and some older generations are, are also thinking about changing expectations. You know, when I came out of school, I was like, well, benefits and pay, and, you know, I'll just come in and, you know, keep quiet and try to do a good job. That's totally different now. They're coming into these roles. They want to belong. They want to have a sense of community. They want the organization's purpose to be aligned with their own individual sense of purpose, which, I mean, to your point, is a totally different way of thinking from an HR benefits professional's point of view. But I think those that recognize this shifting dynamic in terms of what people are looking for from that relationship with their employer, those that recognize that and make efforts to try to address that, you know, we'll be ahead of the curve in terms of attracting and retaining the talent that they need. Yeah, I think you said that really well. And it made me, as you were saying that, think of this new challenge we have, which is even more remote workforce. Mm -hmm. So to create that sense of community, that sense of belonging and well-being with a lot of people not necessarily coming into the office that often, is I think one of our next really big challenges as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, we're dealing with that at my current employer, trying to figure out, like, we're trying to meet people where they are and be flexible. But one of the things that drew me to Alliant was the really strong culture. I've enjoyed that. But 
how do we maintain that in this new hybrid environment? And I've talked to a lot of employers about this. And even though we read in the news about maybe the extreme cases about, all right, you're back in the office five days a week, effective two weeks from now. Based on my conversations, I think most employers are taking a softer, more flexible hybrid approach. But again, it's that balance of being flexible, allowing for a diverse population in terms of how they want to work, but, you know, maintaining and growing the cultures, that's an important part of what, you know, keep people engaged and keep people productive and keep people, you know, wanting to come back and stay with a certain employer. So it's a unique challenge that we don't even have to think about this. I know. We were working hard on culture of health and all those other things, but now trying to do this, like you say, it's really tricky. And, you know, it's so funny early in COVID when we we're all doing this, I remembered we'd have a meeting and you'd get a Grubhub coupon or something for your lunch. And they try to make you feel loved, even though you were distant or, you know, you get a little box at your door before an all day meeting with some stuff in it. All that's gone. Now it's just bang, bang it out, you know, stay in your house. So, well, super interesting, Sean, I just kind of great to kind of go through what's happening these days and what might be innovative. If you were to, as you're guiding your clients these days and closing maybe the last couple of things, what are the, like, what's the main guidance? I know everybody's a little different, but do you have some like core guiding principles when you talk to clients or as you're going forward in this space that you like to remind them of or kind of point out? I think I kind of touch on a little bit of what we talked about earlier in terms of, you said it, the, you know, healthcare is generally the second biggest spend for any given employer, and it's not sustainable over the long term. Like I've always used this little math illustration, but if we look at healthcare as a percentage of GDP in the US, I think we're, you know, 18 or 19% now. I've been doing this example since it was like 13 or 14 percent exactly but you know this is eighth grade math if you just carry healthcare inflation forward and you carry general inflation forward at some point healthcare becomes a hundred percent of the economy which <laughs> obviously there's a tipping point in there somewhere yeah so you know we can't stay on the current path and as i said earlier i think employers are very well positioned to drive transformational change because when you think about the stakeholders Involved in this, you know, certainly individual citizens would like to see an improved system, but I think they lack the collective cohesion to really drive change. I don't think we can wait around for the federal government to figure this out. You know, frankly, providers and hospitals and insurance companies have a vested interest in the status quo to a large extent. And so that leaves us with employers who are, you know, paying 60% of the tab. So I think employers are well positioned to try to drive this change. But as we were talking about earlier, it's about willing to embrace some disruption for solutions that we believe can truly make a difference to, you know, kind of move the needle on that, again, that move toward that quadruple aim. And again, you said it in your intro comments, you know, employers are very much on a spectrum in terms of their readiness to embrace that change. But like in my role, I feel it's important to have a point of view and, you know, with every employer client to say, I think this is where we need to get, you know, you may be over here on the spectrum. And so let's think about what's comfortable for you and what's also going to align with your strategy and your culture and the things that you're trying to accomplish. But 
Like from a high level standpoint, that's the message that I think I pretty consistently bring to my employers. I think it's a great message to remind everybody of, because I've often agree with this, that employers are the drivers of innovation, because just as you outlined, they're at risk. They have the most to lose, the most to gain, and frankly, the most control to the degree that some are, you know, hey, that's not my business. I'm just staying with the status quo. And others we know really are trying different things to others where they're tweaking it. But I think it's an important message and to remind our audience that you guys are the drivers of change. <laughs> so continue to work on it. We know it's not necessarily your main thing, but you have great partners. And there are topics coming up, in my opinion, like health literacy, like some of these technical advances, say around mental health that we've been seeing, some you know online and virtual access issues that are helping tremendously, some interesting plan designs to give people kind of more flexibility with their dollars. So great stuff. I really appreciate your time, Sean, and your commitment. And yeah, I can't believe, you know, we've been doing this a long time. And I think there's some progress somewhere, but I think we all have a stake in it, as you say. So thanks again. I really appreciate your time. And thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, thanks, Seth. Happy to be here. Great to see you. Thanks for joining us today on the Health Literacy 2.0 podcast, the podcast series from EdLogics, where we talk with business, HR, health, and community leaders and explore unique, data-driven, and effective behavior-changing solutions that can help improve people's health literacy and increase their engagement with health and wellness programs. Remember, for show notes and bonus resources, visit www.edlogics.com forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe and share the show with your colleagues. Thanks and see you soon.